Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, Lita. No, no, Lita. So good evening and welcome to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. Tonight we've got a guest, um, well, a bit out of the usual for us, not a writer, um, but uh, he's had a fantastic and extraordinary career in what he does. Um, it's Kiffer Roberts. Hello, Kiffer. Hello. Lovely to have you with us. Um, Kiffer, if you were, uh, I'm going to leave you to introduce you yourself and what you do um but if you are at a a social occasion as we used to be um in the old days and somebody asks you what you do for a living what do you say uh well i would call myself a locations engineer um i work for bbc news and next november i'll have been there for 25 years um and basically i'm i'm one of the people that sets up Hugh Edwards or Jeremy Bowen or any of those people who are on the road doing live television. Uh, we set that up and, and, and make it happen, interviewing all sorts of different people throughout, uh, throughout my career. That makes it sound fairly domestic, but you've been all over the world doing this. I mean, it's so, in, 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 is there any kind of, in normal times, is there anything like a normal week for you or is it different every week it's pretty different every week i mean as as you say right now it's all very samey but uh you know you could be sent down to the high court one day and then the very next or you know that very same day you're on a plane to kiev <laughs> which has happened to me and do you know when it's coming do you know do you know uh, do you uh, is it always just quite instant are you just sent off somewhere I mean, I remember I was doing an early shift, which starts at five o'clock in the morning. And at three o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call. And, and my boss said, uh, it's not just a normal apartment fire. And I sort of thought, oh, no, I've slept in. But I hadn't, because it was three. And he said, just grab a truck and head down to Grenfell Tower. So that was quite... Uh, an eye-opener, probably one of the, you know, you'd see good and bad, and that was one of the worst I've ever covered. Um, mm. So, yeah, it varies a lot. Well, you sent me a document with uh, which details some of the, the things that you've done and the, and the kind of things you've witnessed, really, in your, in your capacity. I mean, David Trimble meeting Jerry Adams. Um, you were at the Trump and Putin summit, uh, You've, you, you were in Paris. I mean, when you are at something that is clearly historic, if you like, um, you know, like being in Paris for that occasion, or being at Grenfell, I mean, presumably you've got to have your engineering head on, head on, as well as as, as being a human being. I mean, how, how is it? I mean, it must be hard to separate from something like Grenfell. Grenfell was really difficult because... Uh, you know, people were, and I think this happens a lot more now with all sorts of spurious information about the ma mainstream media. Um, the, the, you know, you, you, you know, I was, I, somebody shouted at me that I was being a vulture. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm doing my job. You know, this, and it was very, it's very stressful when, when it gets like that. And I, you know. A, Lots of times, people like us run up against hostility, and it, it's it's more and more often it happens. But also, you know, even before then, uh, I was up in Cumbria doing the foot and mouth story. Oh, ten or 15, ten or fifteen years ago, I can't remember exactly. No, it was it was a long time ago, and it it was harrowing. It was you know you drive through these 
you know, English country lanes, and then you see these piles of animals. It was really distressing. And, you know, I'm not the farmer either, so the farmers were in, 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 in you know, they were in free fall, basically. And, and it was, that was another really difficult story to cover. It was, it wasn't foot, it was foot and mouth. It, um, when, when they, they, they killed hundreds of thousands of, of livestock. Um. So, Kiffer, if there'll be young people listening to this who might be thinking, what do I need? How can I get into this? What, 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 what are the qualities I would need in order to be able to do Kiffer's job? Um, yeah, what, what, what do you need in your job in terms of, yeah, human qualities, if you like, skills? So, so now, uh, I think one of the most important things because everything is, is going IP um, is, is some serious computer skills now. It's not, you know, it's not one of my strong points, but everything is t turning from, you know, analog broadcast to digital to, to streaming. And so really strong computer skills uh, and, and networking skills are really, really important. But also, you need to know what we like to call the pointy end, which is where the camera is. Um, you've got to have a, a bit of an artistic flair to make things look nice and sound nice. So those those are, um, you know, so being able to compose a, a a camera shot, making sure that your your audio is correct and clean, and and I also find that. It's really, really, really vital to be able to communicate clearly and effectively, you know, which means you need to know how to write, but also you need to know how to express what you need. Because a lot of times you're directing people and you could have, you know, a senior cabinet minister come up and stand, you know, and you have to say, you need to stand there and you have to do it politely and firmly and uh, it's it's really important to be effective in communicate. You know, communication skills are vital in the job that I'm in. Um, and and just you know, being able to have to get up and go. And the other skills I found were really useful were my scouting skills, because when you're at an earthquake in Turkey or something, and you have to uh, lash up a tent. So good outdoor skills are useful as well. <laughs> I remember a time at being at NATO headquarters in Brussels and everybody set up tents to protect themselves from the rain and the wind. And uh, I'd, I'd spent all day bolstering my tent <laughs> and there was a huge storm overnight. And the next day I came in and everybody's tent, including mine, had blown down and the security guard walked up to me and he said in his Belgian accent he said uh, yes yours was the last to fall <laughs> so I was quite pleased with myself <laughs> even though I had to rebuild it the next day. You've talked about the traumatic event the Grenfell Tower that you you witnessed and you were professionally involved with but have you ever been seriously scared in any jobs? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I had to drive in and drive out of Baghdad uh, before they'd opened the uh, Baghdad, reopened the Baghdad airport. And I was there when they blew up the United Nations headquarters. And that was quite a, that was a, a tough month. It was, it was really uh, not an enjoyable deployment. I, you know, it was interesting to see, um, you know, but you had to drive right past Ramadi and Fallujah, which were really dangerous places. And, you know, had, had they known we were driving by, we would have been prime target for kidnap. Mm. And on the way out, um, our, uh, our armored vehicle got a flat tire. And so you're sitting there going, and so the, the boss has decided, okay, let's just put him in the soft skin vehicle and, 
and you know it was a 12-hour drive and so another eight hours you're driving in a vehicle that could have easily been shot up if they'd seen it and then we got to the Jordanian border and uh, it was quite remarkable to, to, to finally make it to the Jordanian. I've never been more, uh, more happy to see a border, even though I had to wait for two or three hours to get across it. Mm. I, was, I was really happy to, to arrive there. Kiffer, um, it'd be great to hear the piece of music that you've chosen. What, what, it's, it's by someone called Hatchie I've never heard of. Why have you chosen that? And uh, tell us about it. Well, it's, uh, it's a song called Stay With Me, and uh, Hatchie's a, a young singer from Perth, Australia, I think. I think it's Perth. And um, I just, I've been playing it a lot recently to myself. It's, it's, it's basically pop music, and I think she's really good, and it's, it's really inspirationally uplifting, fun music, and um, just, you know, thinking of her right now because she's suffering with COVID. And um, really, really enjoy it. It's a, they're a lovely little band. Kiffer Roberts, who's a location engineer at the BBC, fascinating work life uh, he's had all over the world and in London, originally from Vancouver in, in British Columbia. What's the best thing about your job? What's the, what's the best thing about it routinely? Well, the, I mean, my favourite thing is the camaraderie between all the people. Um, 
that you you work you work with and you see from time to time and running into my Canadian friend Adrian you know I ran into her in Israel I ran into her in South Africa at the World Cup I ran into her in London I've run into her in Paris and it's always quite amusing when you you know you you, you see people like that um the, but the camaraderie is 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 really uh, is really good Finally, tell us about, I said I was intrigued, again, you hinted about it in an email to me. Tell us about the 50,000 Deutschmarks. <laughs> oh, so we were, again, a very last minute deployment. We were sent out to uh, Belgrade to cover the revolution that was happening there. And uh, it was before the Euro, and I was asked to carry 50,000 Deutschmarks in order to hand it to people who were there and didn't have cash because you, you know there are no bank machines in a revolution and you know nobody takes credit cards necessarily i was staying in a in a in a, what i thought was marco milosevic's hotel suite because it was the last one left and they wanted to move me from one suite to another because the hotel had emptied out and we needed a, a less expensive room so I'd packed up and then I'd put my bag behind the front desk and one of my colleagues came up to me and said, you're packed, right? And I said, yes. And he said, they need you to go to Israel now. And I went, oh, okay. And I said, I've got 50,000 Deutschmarks. And they said, it's okay, just take it with you and, you know, go with the, with the, uh, the bureau chief back to, to Israel, my first ever entry into Israel. And um, they train you to put some of the money in your, on your person, some of it in your bag, some of it, you disperse it. And I got to the, to, to the border, i.e. boarding the plane, and the border guard asked me, do you have any money? And I said, uh... <laughs> yeah, I have about 5,000 Deutschmarks. And, of course, I didn't. I had much more. And I hadn't counted, I hadn't counted the money in my, in my wallet, which I should have done, because I just didn't have time. And it, he went counting the money, and he said, would well, you have any more? And I said, uh, yeah, I've got a bit more. And, and he went, where is it? And I went, it's on the plane, because my bag had been loaded. And he, he just looked at me and he just said, well, where'd you get it? And I said, well, I brought it in with me. And he said, but you didn't declare it. And I went, no, of course I didn't declare it. I was going to give it to my colleagues. To... And he just looked at me and in the, in the, um, in the, the glow of revolution, he just thought, well, here, here's your money. Off you go. <laughs> and I got onto the plane, the very last person to get on the plane. Thanks ever so much, Kiffer. That's, it's, uh, that's a great one to finish on. Uh, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us and uh, being part of the words on East Leeds FM. And, um, you know, it's great to hear about your, your working life, and I'm sure it'll be inspiring to many people listening, particularly to uh, young broadcasters who may well be interested in talking to you again sometime if that's okay with you well thank you very much for having me i really appreciate it it's uh it's nice to tell stories because there are hundreds more where those came from yeah do you have another piece of music you'd like just to play yeah uh it's a song called hey by a singer called nullifer yanya and she's from london and she's just a fantastic performer i've never seen her live i really want to go and see her live and i think she's you know one of one of england's top top performers hey i've been trying to meet you
Should I? Joe, a Joe, 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 Love the control. Love the command. Love the spacebar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. This series of programmes is all about translations of songs. Previously, we've seen how one big motive for translating a song isn't to convert the meaning of the original into another tongue, but into piles of cash. Paul Anker did this when he turned Claude François' 1967 hit about mundane details of a dying relationship into Frank Sinatra's premature swan song so old Blue Eyes could brag at length to his mafia connections after a few sherbets. So, we'll not be playing my way again. Also, we've tried to show how, faced with the near impossibility of faithfully translating anything at all, 
most just cut their losses and hope nobody notices. This is how Jacques Brel's regret-free death anthem, Le Moribond, became Terry Jackson's saccharine-soaked Seasons in the Sun. The only version of that worth hearing is Nirvana's, where the slacker ethic is applied so rigorously they don't bother to learn Terry Jackson's words properly. Serves him right, I say. In this programme, though, we investigate what happens when people attempt the impossible, don't admit they're out of the depth, and just do it really badly. But before we do that, a question. What is the purpose of translation? One obvious response is for those who possess the skills to convey meaning for the benefit of those who don't. Of course, this presupposes that the thing is worth conveying in the first place and, as such, is a marker of value for the original. Another, as we previously discussed, is to convert that value into money. However, in song, another grim spectre lurks. The truth is, many people really don't care what the words are. All they want is something to hum. In Danny Baker's highly entertaining trilogy of memoirs, he recalls how his dad, a part-time pub compare, used to belt out songs via a series of stock phrases he would insert whenever he got stuck. It's all right, he'd say. Nobody cares so long as you get to the title in the chorus. In between, he'd bellow lines like, In our good old days, baby, baby, one more time. And, Your sweet, sweet love rocks me. Lest we think ill of such techniques, we need only look at the sad case of Elton John. Once, he bestrode the music world like a colossus, churning out memorable hits you could whistle and, cannily, using proper lyricists. Nowadays, he's adopted the consonant-free delivery of the pub singer, as evidenced by this performance in last year's One World Lockdown concert. think this is all a bit far-fetched, then consider the case of Adriano Celentano. In 1972, this multi-talented singer, songwriter, actor and film director, who is credited, among other things, with introducing rock and roll to Italy, wrote this. Then cold in years old. You the cold maids say one prison cold in years old. All right. Confused? Hardly surprising. This isn't a novelty song. Celentano, a devotee of American rock and roll, was genuinely intending to make something which sounded like American English to an Italian as a commentary on barriers to verbal communication. All right. Truth is, you could play this on most English-speaking radio stations and no one would really notice. 
Another factor for people in the UK is the belief that somehow we're special and the world waits constantly on bated breath for whatever product of our culture is deemed fit for the world market. This, we dominate the world, don't we, mindset is adopted by so many that we even voted to cut off our biggest trading partners in the misguided and ill-informed belief that they need us more than we need them. As you scour empty shells for suddenly worth more than Bitcoin raspberries, ponder the notion that nowhere is this delusion more evident than in popular music. Many Britons' identity is built around a certain national story, which maintains that, in the last hundred years, in the imagination of our collective hearts, we defeated Hitler all on our own, took pop music to the world, and everyone in the former colonies seems a tad churlish for not recognising that a legacy of complicated railway systems, cricket and grinding poverty is worth murdering a few million subjects for. The pop music bit of this mythology, if ever true, is all about 40 years out of date. Let's face it, Iron Maiden still pulling big crowds in Brazil hardly constitutes a rich cultural heritage. Even nostalgia's not as much fun as it used to be, and it's worth bearing in mind that all these things we look back on so fondly like the Beatles, Punk and, mm, I don't know, Thunderbirds, weren't the result of arcing back to more comforting times in our own culture. They were all made by people looking outwards and into the future. All of which takes me back to 1980. Now, if you believe TV retrospectives full of talking heads, the 80s were all shoulder pads, yuppies and Rick Astley records. However, in 1980, I were doing A-levels in a rugby shirt listening to Rush albums. The horror, the horror. However, such was the post-war determination to avoid mass death. In 1980, local councils would still send impressionable types like me on exchange visits to France, which is where I came across trust. Too young for punk, I'd defaulted to being an heavy metal kid and was introduced to France's fave rockers while I was there. It came as quite a shock to hear heavy metal cliches, big air, widdly guitar solos and headbanging, with a punk delivery and serious political lyrics about ayatollahs, outlaws and police brutality. Oh, lot of rosy it wasn't, even though Trust were buddies of ACDC. Anyway, it seems I wasn't the only exchange student lugging their albums in inadequate rucksacks on overnight ferries back to uncomprehending mates because next year they were booked at the Reading Festival. Given that audience's quaint habit of lobbing litre bottles of piss at acts deemed not up to scratch, they decided they needed a translator. The man they chose had a good Reading pedigree, having wowed the 1978 crowd with such rousing boot-boy poetry as Borstal Breakout and If the Kids Are United. Step forward, Jimmy Percy of Sham 69. Now, our Jim has many endearing qualities and it wasn't his fault that his raucous delivery of some fairly idealistic views attracted Nazi football hooligans. However, and I may be doing him a disservice here, he isn't a linguist. Trust's big hit song and title track of their second album was Antisocial, a blistering attack on bourgeois mores and people who'd overconformed to the point where they were barely alive. To an A-level language student using the big bad Collins Robert dictionary essential for doing your weekly prose translation, the chorus translates roughly as Antisocial, you lose your cool. Think back to all those years of service. Antisocial, 
Soon there'll be years of vice. In the end, it's lost time you won't get back. Jimmy Percy, clearly an enthusiastic sort, as evidenced by his high-energy live shows, would have sat at his desk with one of them tiny Collins Gem dictionaries and sucked thoughtfully on his biro. Three hours later, having become marooned on the rocks of whether the subjunctive is a tense or a mood and still none the wiser, this is what he came up with. You're anti. You're antisocial. He then presumably gave up, had a quick chat with Trust's frontman Bernard and just made up some stuff that rhymed. Here's a sample. You're a train ride to no importance. You're in love with hell existence. Money is all you desire. Why don't you pack it in and retire? It's common nature. You can't fool me. I'm just the money that you can't let free. Rainy day genius clouds your mind. Don't you realise? The blind leads the blind. I stopped counting at four clichés. Maybe you can see more. A few years ago, before punk nostalgia became viable enough to tour commercially, I sought Mr Percy out on YouTube when I found him outdoors in a Byronic white shirt doing truly terrible poetry along the lines of In your youth, old man, you were full of fire. Now you're smoking a pipe of briar. I tried to find it again for this programme, but mysteriously it appears to have been suppressed. Quite our line that means you waste your life paying for your gravestone can be rendered as you're a train ride to no importance beats me. And what does you're in love with hell existence mean? Plus, and correct me if I'm wrong here, when we were putting our necks out, head banging along to dud metal bands like Gillen, we didn't really care about the words. Even Rush, whose drummer slash lyricist would talk about being influenced by Ernest Hemingway and John Dos Passos, seemed depressingly obsessed with alt-right sci-fi goblin Ayn Rand. In truth, the real meaning of Jimmy P's attempts at translation was realising that the new wave of British heavy metal movement was pants, albeit spandex ones with cucumbers down them. Trust spirited if musically clichéd albums were a necessary rite of passage. A few months later, I toddled off to university to study languages and my heavy metal phase evaporated upon contact with Joy Division. What does it all mean, eh? We'll let Trust's Bernard Bonvoisin explain. There's an interesting postscript to all this. Whilst doing the research for this programme, I learned that American teeny thrash legends Anthrax had one of their biggest hits covered in the English version of Antisocial. Their fans, raving incoherently in the comments section on YouTube, were completely unaware that the song was originally French. All of which goes to show that even a dodgy translation can earn you belated royalties. And also that when it comes to cultural imperialism, compared to the USA, we're just ranking it Next time, we'll see the effect of someone translating a song properly. And they were born and bred in Leeds! Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words. From ELFM. You're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. And this evening, I have two poets. We're going to be talking about Half Moon Books. Half Moon Books has sadly ceased to be, I understand. We're going to hear more about that from Joe Williams. Hello, Joe. Hello. And from Jane Kite. Hello, Jane. 
Hi. So Jane, um, how, how first of all, tell us how Half Moon came to exist. Sort of by accident, really. Um, it started off um, at the second Otley Word Feast. Otley Word Feast was um, uh, an arts festival in that happened in um, 2012 and 2014. And 2014, uh, the Tour de France uh, came here as well uh, and so we decided to um, put together a book of poems about cycling and that was the very first book uh, and then after that there seemed to be a need for other books somehow uh, and uh, just sort of grew from there really. And obviously, obviously, obviously Otley. Otley is a place where Poets proliferate, as as we know. <laughs> they do. Yes, there's a lot of us. Yeah. Has Half Moon always had a, a kind of an Otley flavour? Well, it's always been based in Otley, and um, I live in Otley. And the um, the other person who was there at the beginning was Sandra Burnett, who also lives in Otley. Um, but that was just sort of. Um, the beginnings of things really we've published poets from um mostly from the sort of west yorkshire area um in the individual collections but in the um in the anthologies we have poets from all over the world um so uh yeah we've always had a local base and always it's always been sort of part of what we do that we're about um, giving a publishing opportunity to local poets because um, that was really what seemed uh, quite lacking when we started off. There, there weren't uh, many opportunities for publication sort of locally. So Joe, how did you get involved? Well, when I started going to poetry events around 2015 I ended up meeting a lot of the the Otley poets who uh, who would often come to events in Leeds so I got to know Jane and um, a lot of the other people who were being published by Half Moon or OWF, OWF Press as it was at the time um, so I you know came across the those poets and was reading their books and I really liked what they were doing and I had a, a secret dream that uh, within a couple of years I'd have a pamphlet published by OWF as well um, and I did in 2017 by that time they'd become Half Moon Books and I had a, a poem in one of the anthologies as well um, the, the poems about pubs anthology where we also had poems printed on beer mats and I was very pleased to be one of the people who had a, a poem on a beer mat and those were distributed around uh, pubs around Yorkshire and yeah then I, I uh, had the pamphlet Killing the Piano came out in 2000, 2017 I was very pleased to be asked to uh, to submit some work and put together a pamphlet. And uh, it all kind of built from there, really. Then I had a, a second book with them, and I've edited an anthology this year, The View from Olympia. So I've been involved in all sorts of different ways, really. And just to clarify, OWF is Otley Word Feast, yeah. We were called Otley Word Feast Press for a few years until we brought out the, um, uh, the anthology of poems about pubs which was called Half Moon uh, and it was called Half Moon because at the time we had an office in buildings that used to be the Half Moon pub in Otley um, and we thought Half Moon sounded quite nice so we changed our name. Jane you've got a poem uh, you've chosen one I mean it must have been very very hard to do that because I, 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 <laughs> I'm sure you yeah. have great choice uh, a range to choose from but yeah what have you chosen to kind of represent uh, half moon well when i was um deciding what what to read i um first book i picked up from our pile of um 40 odd uh was the garden anthology um and i found myself reading all the way through it i hadn't read it for a few years and then there's some really really good poems in it so i chose this one um which sort of plays on the idea of um, the moon being made of cheese. Uh, it's by Tom Kelly, uh, and it's called 
the allotment and the Edam moon. All those folks with their dash and rush, their caffeine-induced jitters, and the craving for a promotion that never comes, and what if it did? Like fools in a boat chasing a floating cheese, net in hand across a mill pond on the night of the full Edam moon, they thresh the water but never catch their prize. I have always preferred the quiet accomplishment that comes from turning the soil. To think this wormy allotment might have turned more than the earth itself. All the while, the Edam moon has looked down at those trying to grab its reflection, never turning, always keeping the same face pointed earthwards with a wry, cheesy smile. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Sure, you had a, a, a great, uh, lots of options there, but you chose a good one. So, Joe, what about you? I'll ask you to read a, read a poem in a, in a few minutes, but what would be a, a half moon highlight for you? Um, well, well uh, I'll talk about the anthology that uh, we put together this year that I mentioned. It's been really kind of fun and uh, although hard work, it was really great putting it together. We first came up with the idea about this time last year we decided um, to put an anthology out about uh, the Olympic Games, poems inspired by Olympic sports, and we were going to tie it in with the, the 2020 Olympic Games. And this was before we'd ever heard of coronavirus, so of course we, we didn't know what was, what was going to happen. And uh, we ended up putting the book out anyway around the time when the Olympics should have happened. And yeah, it was a real pleasure kind of going through everyone's work. Uh, we had work submitted from, from all over the world, We've got poets in there from India and the US and Canada, lots of places. And yeah, it was a real pleasure and privilege to to be given that and, and uh, be able to, to choose what we wanted to take from that and put together this book that I'm really proud of. And it's the poem that you've got yes. from that anthology? It is, yes. I, I decided to, to take one from that. It's a poem by Nick Allen, who um, also has a, a collection and a pamphlet with Half Moon, his collection's called The Riding, uh, and this poem's in included in that as well as in, in the anthology. The poem's called The Bruising. It only seemed to happen when matches were due to be played on Saturday mornings. There would be snow, and the home teacher would ring the away to discuss the ground. Was it too hard, or would it take a stud? We scratched the markings of the pitch using a board or a shovel, hung the nets, always a smaller boy on your shoulders to place net over hook, net over hook, and again, balance could be a problem, but not as much as if he'd already rubbed wintergreen into his legs. Then out came the orange ball, probably the only one the school had. It looked like a sun fallen and doused by all this grey weather. Some played in gloves, others had hands down short seeking warmth. We had barely started to shave, but for 80 minutes we were acne-riddled gods, making snow-flurry galaxies as we chased this thing haphazard around the universe of our field. But if you got too close in a tackle, and the ball slapped cold against your thigh, the bruising would last for days. So, um, you've chosen to, to, to close Half Moon. Um, so, wh why? <laughs> well... Um, we sort of figured we'd um, done enough, really. Um, I, I think uh, uh, we, we've sort of... Uh, I think one of the pleasures of, of Half Moon Books has, has been all the different people that have contributed to it in all sorts of different ways. And it, it's all been completely sort of voluntary effort. Uh, uh, and that's that's been really great, but I guess we got to a point where um, we had quite a substantial back catalogue, and more and more people wanting to uh, be published by us, and plenty of ideas. Um, but it's it's really hard work, uh, and I think if we'd carried on, we'd have had to um, either start trying to make a profit. Um, or develop a, 
an interest in filling out grant application forms and uh, as it seemed as though neither of those things was likely to happen um, we decided to um, uh, quit while we're ahead really um, I, I think uh, it, it's it's a lot of fun but it's it's a lot of hard work and there isn't really any money in publishing poetry um, so yeah we just decided to to stop where we are but you did go out with a bang so Joe tell us about the final <laughs> yeah, event we <laughs> yeah we had a, an event inevitably a zoom event as the nearly all are these days um, yeah we had a we decided to have this party really to close things off um, and uh, I was very pleased to be to be one of the the hosts we had four different hosts of uh, with people who've been involved with Half Moon in various ways and it was, it was really great to bring together a lot of the, the poets who've been published by Half Moon previously I think there was about 30 in the end who all read for a few minutes so I had a real good selection of of poets and poems um, it was fantastic with Zoom events I usually find about two hours is my maximum before I get very drained <laughs> but on this occasion we went for nearly five hours and I loved every minute minute of it it was just it felt like it had it was just over in minutes. It was brilliant. Jane, do you think there's a legacy from Half Moon that you would like to, you know, that would continue? I, I suppose the, the the legacy is is as much in in the uh, or, or the the links between all the people that have been involved. Um, when I was looking at, at the garden anthology uh, today, looking for a poem, I just. Um, uh, on on the front page, it it, it says the the, the garden uh, poems that will grow on you, selected by Geraldine Clarkson, John Foggin, and Greg White, and and collated by Peter White, with an introduction by Bob Flowerdew, you know, uh, which is just that's before you even get to the poets. Uh, there are a lot of different people, both from from around here, but but from further afield, that have been involved in the whole thing, and I think. Um, uh, I think that's one of the um, things that, that I think has been good. Um, I think the other thing is, particularly with the anthologies, uh, uh, maybe we can talk about the collections afterwards, but um, the, the idea of them really was that they bring, uh, it, it bring poetry to people who didn't usually read it, so uh, that cycling enthusiasts are by spokes and garden enthusiasts are by the one about gardens and, and sports enthusiasts are, 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 are by the Olympia one. Um, so, so I hope it might have um, spread poetry around a bit. How about you, Joe? I mean, in terms of the, the collections, for instance, that Jane's been talking about, yeah, how, how do they fit into the picture, into the, the, the legacy of Half Moon? I think it's um, yeah an important part of of what's been a really fantastic whole. You know, it's um, there's been such a variety of, of of different books and different writers published by Half Moon that uh, it all kind of meshes together in in one sort of uh, big ball of poetry. And I've got and have read most of the books that have been published over the years, and there's some wonderful stuff. I think perhaps the most important thing about the legacy is the opportunities that have been provided for people who are publishing their first book or first pamphlets and I say that as someone who was given that opportunity it was really great mm. um, that a publisher approached me in what were really quite <laughs> early days for me when I was a writer and to be able to to put out uh, my first pamphlet with Half Moon was a really crucially important um, part of my of my writing journey and the same applies to, to many other writers you know that opportunity same opportunity has been provided to to dozens of people really who perhaps might never have otherwise have published a book and many of those people have gone on, on, on have gone on to publish more books as well so you know it's it's all part of, of what has been created by the enthusiasm of people like Jane initially and then the other people who've been involved in making things happen as Jane mentioned without any any profits any money in it at all really because that's poetry it's all about the people and the community and the effort that people put into to making those things happen. It's been great talking to you both. And yeah, I would heartily endorse uh, 
what you've said. I mean, I, I, I've got some lovely uh, Half Moon publications on my shelf, and they, uh, yeah, they for me they're a kind of picture of a certain moment in time, a, a certain community of writers that have existed, asked of existing. Thank you so much to Jane Kite and Joe Williams and thank you to Half Moon for being there. Uh, you've done a great job over these years and uh, yeah, I'm sure a lot of poets will will share that uh, share that feeling. Thanks for taking part in this interview. Thanks Peter, Thanks. it's been great. Thank you. Love the haiku, love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM. <laughs>